0: Well, the Apostle John, who likely wrote the book of Revelation, he also penned a letter in the New Testament that we call 1 John. And in the book of 1 John, he says in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, these challenging words. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those are challenging words, aren't they? God commands His people not to love the world. Now, by the world, John is not saying the created world that God made, and it is good. By world, he is talking about there, in this case, humanity, fallen humanity's opposition to God. And so the world includes those who don't follow Christ, as well as the various means that uh, are used in the world to distract and to draw people away From following Christ. Things that get turned into sin and idolatry like money, possessions, pleasures, and so on. That's why he says there in the passage, the things in the world. Now those things are not worldly per se. It's not wrong to see these things in the light of money or possessions by themselves. But they are used to stir our sinful desires, aren't they? To pursue them over God. And so the church continually wrestles with this battle with the world. And you see it reflected in other New Testament writers who call the church about this warning. Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4, 4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, very strong words, right, that we see in the New Testament about the church and our need to watch the world's influence in our lives. So, now when we come to the book of Revelation, we see once again this emphasis on the world. But we're not surprised. ...that the book of Revelation addresses it in a different way. Instead of giving instruction, we're giving a symbol. And the symbol that we see here is Babylon the Great, the prostitute... ...who symbolizes the world and her influence over the nations. Babylon is an illustration, if you will, of 1 John chapter 2 that we just said, what we just read... So church, this morning I hope and my heart is burdened that each of us will listen closely to this message. You say, why is that? Why do we need to hear from God about this? Because I believe the world is waging a successful war against the church, at least in the western part of the world. The famous British uh, pastor Charles Spurgeon said, quote, One reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Just think about our nation. We have a lot of Christians in our country, don't we? We have an enormous amount of resources at our disposal. But we're not making the impact that we should as a church. We're not living the way that we should. Something is wrong. And a major reason is worldliness. Worldliness. The world tempts many Christians to fall into sin deep sin, enslaving sin that uh, that, that destroys their lives, destroys the lives of those around them. The world tempts Christians. And I see this a lot, just to lose their desire to hunger and thirst for God, to obey God. And just to be content with an apathetic life. Well-meaning Christians make little impact, not because they don't want to, but the world just kind of overwhelms us, doesn't it? And so we forfeit our time and our talents and our resources to the world instead of advancing the kingdom of God. So I think we need to hear a message today. Amen? Amen. We need to hear from God. We need to hear from someone who is not immersed in the world as all of us are. And yes, we all are immersed in the world. We are in the world, but we're not supposed to be of it. But we are in the world. We can't escape from it. But God speaks to us from this transcendent viewpoint. And so we need to hear from him what the world is really like, to know its dangers, right? And also, what are God's promises to overcome the world? So let me invite you to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Last time in our series on Revelation, we covered the seven bold judgments. And when we did, we saw that it depicted the end of the world. And you might be thinking, okay, so what's, what's left, right? We've, we've talked about the end of the world. Well, there is some more left here. There's about six chapters left in the book of Revelation. We're coming down the home stretch here in this amazing book. And here is what is left in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. John's going to talk about Babylon the Great here, the symbol of the world and its influence upon humanity. And it's interesting because it's set against, uh, in in the rest of Revelation, this picture of another woman, the bride of Christ, right, who symbolizes the church. They're set in contrast to one another. And we're also going to see how Babylon is going to be destroyed. Praise God for that. And then after that, the beast, and then the false prophet, and finally Satan. All of them destroyed. And then Revelation closes with the glorious depiction of the new creation when Jesus returns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth that will never fade or pass away. That's going to be a great way to end. The Bible knows how to have a good ending, doesn't it? It really ends well. But today... And next week, we're going to cover Babylon the Great, this powerful symbol of the world. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. The first part of our passage is the introduction of Babylon, the introduction of Babylon. So let's read the first six verses together. John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So one of the angels we see here who participates in the bold judgments said to John that he was going to show them the, the judgment of the great prostitute, and he takes them away in this vision to the wilderness to show him. we're going to see the same thing in Revelation 21 when he sees the Bride of Christ coming down. So again, these two are kind of set in parallel. Now the name of the prostitute is Babylon the Great. You say, "Why? is she named Babylon the Great. Well, this ties back, of course, to the Old Testament and the beginning of Genesis chapter 11 there, where there was a great city called Babel, and it was known for its pride and achievement, culture and idolatry. And we think, of course, of the Tower of Babel that tried to stretch up to heaven. Well, then much later, after Babel, the Babylonian Empire, then it rose to ascendancy and great power. And it, too, was known for its pride and achievement and culture and idolatry. Despite its great power, God said Babylon was going to fall. And it was going to fall permanently Jeremiah comes along and predicts this fact. He says that uh, Babylon will be a perpetual waste. Then in verse 64, he goes on to say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her. And God's word is true. Amen. It always comes to pass. Persia comes along and destroys Babylon. Babylon never was the same. So I think the name here now that we come to the book of Revelation is being used symbolically, not an actual city. And we see hints of this in 1 Peter chapter 5.13 where Peter says he sends greetings along with them because he says there the apostle tells his readers that they, those at Babylon greet them. He wasn't in Babylon, but he was in Rome, okay? And Rome was being used as a symbol, a great city once again known for its great achievements and its idolatry and its accomplishments and its pride. Now in Revelation, though, we're seeing it being applied to the world, not just a geographic city, but symbolically of the world, I think it's also symbolic because we see how it's contrasted with the bride of Christ, which, of course, is symbolic of the church. Now, in Revelation, Babylon has been kind of making some sneak peeks along the way. Remember in Revelation 11, at the end of the trumpet judgments, it mentioned the fall of, quote, the great city. It's not named there, but being called the great city is a tip-off because eight other times in the book of Revelation, the book of uh, Babylon is called the great city. In Revelation 14, one of the angels declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. And then finally in Revelation 16, last time we saw it says, The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So you guys see there's been a lot of build up, sneak peeks about Babylon, but we haven't had any kind of real sustained teaching about Babylon like we did with Satan and the beast and the false prophet. But now it comes Babylon's turn as we come to chapter 17. There's going to be a whole lot here. You probably read those first six verses, and some of you might be, what is going on here? There's a lot being said here. To try to break it down, I'm going to condense it to four points, okay? Four points to help us along. Alliterated just for your benefit. So, you guys will memorize all of these, okay? All begin with the letter A. The first is the appearance of Babylon. What did it say about her appearance? She's arrayed in purple and scarlet, symbolizing her luxury. She wears gold and pearls and jewels, holds a golden cup, again, symbolizing wealth. So, outwardly, Babylon looks beautiful, enticing, and powerful. That's the appearance of Babylon. Let's look at the activity of Babylon. What's she doing? Well, she leads people to pursue wealth and pleasure over God. That's why she's called a prostitute. She leads people into spiritual adultery. In the Old Testament, prostitution was symbolic of idolatry, where people would chase after idols instead of a relationship with God. And so here, Babylon, she leads all the nations. You guys following this? She's leading all the nations to pursue idolatry. But her idolatry is kind of more of the economic and the cultural rather than the religious here in the book of Revelation. We've already seen the false prophet. That's kind of his domain. So Babylon is is, is really just laying out, enticing the nations of the world with culture and economics. Now to clarify, Scripture doesn't condemn those things, right? Culture and money are not evil per se. They're actually good gifts that God gives to the world. But the problem isn't that we want those things. The problem isn't that we want them too much, right? And God uses them, or excuse me, the devil uses them to tempt us in making them idols. As we see in our text here, this is all over the place. Babylon tempts the world leaders, as noted by the kings and their relationship with her but it's not just the world leaders he says uh, the people who are dwellers on earth we've seen this again and again in revelation it's kind of a technical phrase to talk about those who are non-christians those whose home is this earth their values are this earth they are led astray by babylon the whole world is intoxicated by her just consumed by babylon But also it says in verse 6 that Babylon persecutes the church. So not only does she have a cup that she gets the, the nations of the world drunk with her uh, you know, spiritual idolatry. But she's also drinking, as it said there, from, she's drunk from the blood of the martyrs. She may not play the lead role like the beast does, who persecutes heavily the church, but she does play a role. So the world this what's so crazy, is that we, as, as Christians, are enamored by the world, but the world is actually antagonistic to the church. The church is declaring war on the ch- I mean, excuse me, the world is declaring war on the church, but the church wants to be just enamored by the world. It's antagonistic to the church. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the activity of Babylon here is to lead people to pursue wealth and pleasure over God and to persecute the church. How about the authority, the third point here of Babylon? Babylon. What does it say about her? She sits on the waters. Now, when a king or queen is in a position of authority, what do they do? They sit down, right? They rule, they reign in that sitting position. Four times in this passage, it says that Babylon sits. And where does she sit? She sits on the many waters, symbolizing her authority over all of the earth. So make no mistake about it. Babylon is very powerful indeed. Amen. That's why she's called the great or the great city. And then we come to the alliance of Babylon. She sits upon the beast, the beast who came from the sea, who symbolizes the persecution of of the, the church of God by the governments. And their alliance between them is mutual. On one hand, Babylon depends on the beast. She needs him for support, right? You can't have all of this intoxicating wealth and materialism and culture and so forth if you don't have a stable government, right? If the government falls apart, all that stuff will fall apart too. But likewise, on the other hand, Babylon sits on the beast, symbolizing her kind of authority over the beast, We see this in our world where the economy and the culture, they often drive the government. People will make up laws to fit where the culture's heading, right? It's not like, okay, these are laws that are fixed and we need to uphold these. No, it's like the culture changes and let's now make new laws to fit the culture, right? So Babylon is driving the beast and the beast supports Babylon. There's this mutual alliance between them. So that's kind of the introduction there of the... Woman Babylon, the great prostitute. The second part is the mystery of Babylon, the mystery of Babylon. Let's read verses 7 to 14 together. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast. Because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth king... It is an eighth, but belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings." And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So upon seeing Babylon, this vision that John has given, he marvels greatly. The angel asks, why are you marveling? And then he goes on to explain the mystery of Babylon and the beast. So the angel describes kind of what we already covered in Revelation 13, how this beast appears to die and rise again. I think the point here is that these oppressive governments that do persecute the church, they seem to at times receive this judgment from God where they have civil unrest or their economy falters and they seem like they're going downhill. And then all of a sudden, pardon the pun here, but they go into beast mode, right? They're able to kind of revive and put themselves back on their feet again. Just think about our uh, our world the last 50 years, you can just watch and see how these different nations, you think, oh wow, that nation's fallen apart. But then next thing you know, 10, 20 years later, here they come again, persecuting the church once again and so forth. And so there's just this continual rising and falling again here. And once this happened, this recovery causes non-Christians to marvel. As we said before, the beast loves to counterfeit Christ, that Christ rose again. And so these these nations try to Mimic Christ. Of course, they're not literally rising from the dead, but there's this insatiable desire in Satan to try to imitate and counterfeit Christ. And when these nations do this, it draws the awe and the allegiance of the people. This is a powerful point. Because humans possess a deep desire to worship something. You realize that? We are made to worship something, and you are going to worship something. That's just the way we're made. God made us to worship Him. But because of our sin, like Romans 1 teaches us, we don't naturally gravitate toward that. We suppress that, that worship of God as our righteous judge and creator and redeemer and so forth. And so instead, we put other things in God's place like nature, people, and even institutions like governments. Now, that's not to say that they're going around saying those things are God, but they give it their ultimate trust, right? You ask probably a lot of people in our country and say, what are you depending on to get our nation through its difficult days? They're going to say the government, right? That's what we trust ultimately, rather than God we trust. Now, in verses 9 to 12, We read a challenging text. This is a challenging text in Revelation. So to start here, we're told that we need a a mind of wisdom. That kind of reminds us of Revelation 13 to 18 that said we need wisdom to know the the number and the name of the beast. Remember the 666 that came up there? You say, well, what's going on here? Well, it says five kings have come and gone. One is present, at least at the time of John when he was writing. And then one is yet to come. And then it also says the beast... uh, want to come in the future only for a short time. The beast is the eighth king, but he belongs to the other seven. So you say, what on earth is that talking about? Well, in my mind, there are two, here are the two best views that I would say. I won't go into a lot of time. One would be that these kings represent kingdoms that have persecuted God's people. And so people would point to Egypt, They would say Assyria, Babylon, the old Babylon there, and the Persians and the Greeks. The sixth kingdom is Rome when John was writing, and the seventh kingdom will be in the future when an antichrist figure rises and persecutes the church. Another option is that the king symbolize the fullness of the beast's power. The number seven symbolizes fullness. And so the thought would be that the beast raises up different kingdoms throughout the earth, but at the end of time, there's going to be risen up this great figure, the Antichrist, and he is going to persecute the church. Either way, either view, the, the beast is energized. He's directed by Satan to bring about these things. I'll let you decide which one you want to go with. But also, there's this question about the ten kings who rise to power with the beast for a very short time. As we've seen in other places in Revelation, at the very end of time, Satan's given this very brief, uh, unprecedented reign over the earth. And when this happens, he's going to empower the beast to persecute the church, to raise up. The Antichrist is a worldwide leader. And so these ten kings who were there at the end of time, they're either going to be ten actual kingdoms, or again, it might be symbolic of the kingdoms of the world. Those who would say that point to Revelation 16, 12, where it talked about how the kingdoms of the world were persecuting the church at the very end. Again, I'll let you make your decision about that. But by the way, this leads to one final great battle that we saw last week called the Battle of Armageddon. Here's just another snapshot of what occurs there. The leaders of the world at the very end of time are going to make war on the Lamb, which I take to mean his people, his church. There's this massive wave of persecution that's going to hit the church at the end of time and be successful for at least a little, little while, and then Jesus is going to return and conquer them. Amen? Why is he going to do it? Well, the Bible says he is the Lord of lords there, and he is the King of kings. One fell swoop when he returns. We'll see this discussed in Revelation 19, where the focus is going to shift to the beast and the false prophet and how they're destroyed. So the third part of our passage here as we conclude, is the judgment of Babylon. Let's read verses 15 to 18. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. Until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the angel again. Kind of as the guide here, telling John, giving further explanation. Babylon is seated over many waters. Again, showing her authority over the nations of the world. But then in verse 16, we get this really key insight about the end of time. What will take place at the very end. The governments of the world are going to hate Babylon and destroy it. As it says there, did you read that? It says that is actually part of God's plan to bring this about say, what does this mean? Well, again, at this very end of time when Satan is given this unprecedented authority and this antichrist-like figure is going to rise up with tremendous military political power, there seems to be, in the midst of persecuting the church, he's going to turn on Babylon. Going to turn on the culture and the economy and so forth and put all of his eggs, so to speak, in one basket in persecuting the church. You say, why does this happen? I don't know exactly, so I'm not going to pretend to say I know for sure. But it caused me to think about how sometimes in our world today... When you have, say, like a military warlord, and now when he takes control over an area, right, everything is about power and control there and having a military force and a military presence. And anything with the economy and culture, that takes a nosedive, right? It's all about just having power and authority. So perhaps that's what takes place at the very end of time, but it's just going to be on an absolute global scale. So that will be the end of Babylon. Let me close with some application here today. I'd like to go back to kind of where we began at the message, the beginning of the message. As we saw here Babylon is a remarkable depiction of the world and its incredible allurement. And rather than giving instruction as we see in other parts of the New Testament, John gives us this very vivid picture that reveals the true nature of the world, Babylon the Great. And he does so so that we will not be deceived, church. Outwardly, Babylon looks wonderful, enticing, beautiful, and so forth, but we see its effects once its true nature is revealed. And God wants the church to know the true nature of Babylon, the true nature of the world, rather than being enticed and led astray by it, because worldliness is a universal threat to the church no one is immune. It's not just for young people. It's for young and old alike. It's not just for spiritually immature people. It's for the spiritually mature as well. All of us sitting here today need to hear this very clear warning that we see about Babylon. In case you say, oh, I'm not really convinced. Let me give you an example. In the New Testament, we see the case of a person named Demas. This person uh, appears a couple times in the New Testament. We know from these passages that Demas was actually a, a good friend of the Apostle Paul, and he traveled around with Paul. Paul, of course, he, he went around and he started churches throughout the Roman Empire. He would strengthen churches, and Demas went along with Paul on his journeys. He also When Paul was in prison, he stood by Paul while he was in prison, putting himself at risk, right, to do so. So by all accounts, Demas was a very committed believer, willing to sacrifice himself for the gospel. However, toward the end of Paul's life, we read this sad account in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Did you guys hear that? Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas is proof positive of the power of the world. A companion of Paul, the Apostle Paul, abandons everything. For what? For the world. If that doesn't get our attention, I'm not really sure what else will. No one is immune from the temptation of the world. It is very dangerous. So I want to just ask all of us to examine ourselves. And perhaps the best way to self-assess is to ask a very simple question. How much am I seeking God right now? How much am I seeking God right now? You see, God made us in such a way that our hearts are either filled with a desire to love and worship and serve Him and His kingdom, or to love the world. We can't do both at the same time. One's going to dominate. Like Jesus said, you can't have two masters, right? It's going to be one or the other. So are you seeking God today? Not that you do it in the past, but how about today? Does does knowing God appeal to you? Does serving God appeal to you? Would you look at your life right now and say, there is sacrifice for Christ. Sacrifice for Christ, as he's called me to do. Or have you lost the fire for God that you once had? Is there apathy to pray and read scripture? Is your mind just fixated by entertainment and pleasure, so much so that you just, it's hard to focus on anything spiritual? Is your life overwhelmed by money and possessions? Are you more concerned about the praise of others than the praise of God? Is the world taking over your life? If that's the case, can I just urge you with every ounce of my being to wake up and start fighting for your spiritual life? Fight for your spiritual life. It is so dangerous to drift into worldliness And I think a big, key step in the fight is a deep reminder of who Christ is and what He did for us on the cross. Amen? That is a key step. Galatians 6.14 says, "...far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which..." Listen to that. "...by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." Focusing on Christ... Put to, death the, put to death when we got saved. Put to death the world. And it will continue to do so only, though, if we focus on Christ. It's as we focus on Christ and remember him and, and what he did for us and liberated us from our enslavement to sin, that is what helps us to put to death the allurement of the world. Turn to Jesus. Amen? I think there's an old hymn that says words like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I would just ask if perhaps you do not know Christ and you're sitting here today, are you tired of the world? The world does look alluring but it will never satisfy ultimately. You will grow tired and exhausted and depleted because you cannot find ultimate true spiritual satisfaction in what the world has to offer. You will have ever-increasing cravings and ever-decreasing satisfaction. And you will try harder and harder and harder and harder and harder to attain that satisfaction that will always be fleeing from you when Christ is there the whole time to provide it. But are you tired? Are you tired of chasing the world and thinking that this is where it's at? The money, the wealth, possessions, the prestige, the education, whatever it might be, it's just right there at my fingertips. And I'm just about to have it. And when I get to that place, then I'm going to arrive. Then everything's going to be good. It's enslaving, isn't it? But Christ is in the amazing business of rescuing people who are chasing after the world. But they have to come to a place where they're exhausted and realize that they need to turn to Jesus. And He sends the Holy Spirit to the world to help us. To help people who don't know Jesus yet. He says in John chapter 16 verse 8. He said when he the Holy Spirit comes. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit comes along, and if someone is, is, is listening to him, he starts working in their heart. Sometimes, even, obviously, before they even know, right, he just starts, because he's sovereign, he's going to start just working in your heart, and then your heart just starts opening up. And all of a sudden, you start becoming keenly aware of eternal realities, spiritual realities. You start becoming aware of sin, your own lack of righteousness, the fact that Judgment Day is coming one day, and you're not prepared for it. You start thinking of those things. It's the Holy Spirit making you aware, preparing you for these realities. You see your need for a Savior rather than trying to save yourself. And if that is you, maybe that's you here today. Can I encourage you to listen to the wonderful promise that John wrote earlier in his gospel. Where he says, For God so loved the world... Isn't that amazing? God so loves this world that's in opposition to him, that's persecuting his church. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The offer is there on the table for anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ, find rescue from the world, and to believe in him. Today can be the day of salvation. Don't let another day go by. Don't think that you're going to find that golden pot at the end of the rainbow and everything's going to be good. It'll just get pushed a little bit further out for you. There will always be one more thing to chase after. when what we're looking for most of all is to be made right with our creator and our redeemer, and that comes to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your truth that you have given about the world that we've seen here, Babylon, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to take to heart the things that we have heard, help us to learn what was spoken of here, these uh, great realities about Babylon and the world. Lord, we pray that you would change our heart affections if we're drifting today, that we would not love the world but that we would love you first and foremost. Make us alive, Lord Jesus. Make us alive. Help us to identify those areas where we're drifting and where there's apathy and lay them down at the foot of the cross. And Lord, I pray for someone here today who's never trusted you for salvation, who just feels lost, feels alienated from you, feels just... uh, snared in the web of their own sin and despair. Lord, help them to see that today can be the day of salvation. They will simply call upon the name of the Lord for you to rescue them, to confess their sin and to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. Thank you for your love for us to share how we can walk victoriously by your power, and by your gospel. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. amen, amen.